Good afternoon and welcome to Midday. I'm Jane Miller, sitting in for Tom Hall. I hope you're enjoying your President's Day. The pandemic has had a lasting impact on how people work, when they work, and where they want to work. Remote and hybrid options are turning out to become permanent changes to our more traditional work schedules. But picture this option, only four days of work per week. The Maryland legislature is now considering a bill to start a four-day workweek pilot. Joining me today to discuss this is the bill's sponsor, Senator Shelley Hedelman, a Democrat from Baltimore County. Senator Hedelman, thank you for joining us today. She joins us via Zoom. And Senator, this is probably a perfect topic today, considering most people are in a four-day work week because of the <laughs> holiday. Right. So this right. is Senate Bill 197. Um, you've had a hearing on it already. So let's just talk, first of all, just basically, what does this bill do? Sure. Um, thanks for having me, Jane. This bill creates a five-year pilot program. It provides tax credits for businesses that are willing to be part of the pilot. It is not mandatory. It is 100% voluntary. Businesses that have not already implemented a four-day work week would apply to the Department of Labor for a lot of technical assistance and uh, willingness to share data. Uh, we want this, we want to learn from this project. We want to see if this works, how effective it is in their businesses and have them share that with the Department of Labor. The Department of Labor would give them technical assistance in terms of how to structure it in their workplace and collect the data, do some research and then report back to us. Um, there's a set amount of money that we would give. We're actually going to put in some amendments to change the um, number of employees that somebody would have to have in order to participate and um, cap the tax credit per business. Now, this is this would be apply to, first of all, is, is it your intent to really kind of get this as an idea for state government, of which obviously the legislature would have more control, um, as opposed to the private sector? I know you're offering tax credits for the private sector, but is it really your intent to try to see if this would really fly in government? first? Honestly, it's for each sector. And in fact, we have an amendment to include the nonprofit sector also, and they're interested in participating. So it's nonprofit, it's private business, and it is encouraging the public sector to do so as well. The, yes. the private sector doesn't need a bill to do this, right? Well, you know what? We didn't need bills and uh, we didn't need outside intervention, except we had it through COVID to push businesses to allow folks to work virtually, right? That was something that we always had. We had the technology to do it. Um, people wanted to work from home, but it was an unfortunate event, but COVID was really the circumstance that nudged businesses to kind of go beyond their comfort level and to implement virtual working and hybrid working, which now is a part of our work life. So I see it just like that. There are times where government can provide a little nudge. In this case, it's a carrot. It's in a little incentive. It's a little assistance from the Department of Labor um, in order to be able to take that next step. This has actually worked in, and there's been a whole lot of study done in European countries and in some Asian countries. And we have seen some incredible results from it, but businesses often don't like to get out too far ahead. They sort of looking for safety in numbers. And this is just a little incentive to be able to take that next leap and experiment. I saw a story that about a, just let, a couple of days ago about a small municipality in New Jersey that is going to a four-day work week, which would mean a four-day, you know, government offices open week. 
And in that mm-hmm. case, they, they're going to do four 10-hour days, 8.30 to mm-hmm. 6.30. W- w- mm-hmm. so, so I think we ought to be clear here about when we talk about a four-day work week, is the goal to have four 10-hour days or four, you know, eight-and-a-half-hour days, whatever, an actually shorter work week? So the bill actually calls for a 32-hour work week. This is something that um, we're, we're in conversation with our colleagues about. Honestly, it's about providing more flexibility in the workplace. It is about allowing workers to have another day where they can do things that they stress about while they're at work, to make doctor's appointments, to be able to garden, to be able to show up at their kid's school to volunteer, to be able to take their kid to a doctor's appointment. It's really about addressing burnout, It's about addressing our changes and our work-life balance, but it's also about increasing productivity in the workplace because where where this has happened, productivity has gone up. Workers have been happier. They've become more efficient in their workplace. So it's really a win-win for both employers and employees. Well, you're listening to Midday on 88.1 WIPR. I'm Jane Miller sitting in today for Tom Hall. And if you want to join this conversation, you can call us at 410-662-8780, email us at midday at wypr.org, or tweet us at Midday WIPR. You want to tweet me directly, it's at J.E. Miller Bolt. Uh, And we actually have a couple of comments here, which I think does, you know, kind of get to some of the main questions about this. Um, We have a message that says, I work in an office where it's impossible to work from home. Maybe that's unusual, maybe not. And employers are currently fortunate to be able to find enough qualified employees. A 10-hour workday upends the longstanding American work schedule, which is kind of a follow-up to what we just talked about of whether this would be, you know, 10-hour days, if this would be 8-hour days. As you said, what you're looking at is really a 32-hour work week. But to the point, is this intended to get people into the workplace, which has been obviously a real issue um, since the pandemic? I think that it provides a huge incentive to uh, new workers. Younger workers are looking for more flexibility in their workplace. They're looking at things slightly different from older workers. There was a company that was trying to, it was, actually it was a bank in the UK, and they were trying to, they had put out ads to get workers. When they put that they were going to have a four-day work week, their applications went up 500%. That's pretty impressive. It can be a real attractive um, benefit for workplaces that are having real struggles addressing attracting workers and applicants. I mean, right? Do we have the term, the great resignation? There are folks who have not re-entered the workforce for whatever reason, and I think this is a real lure to get them back. I know that when you had the hearing, I think it was February 9th, the bill had a hearing. Um, uh, It's before the Senate Finance Committee, am I correct? That is right. Okay, so so the opponents, um, critics of the bill, uh, one of them on behalf of small businesses, was very critical of, you know, any attempt to, you know, shorten the work week for small businesses or have to have them compete against that, considering that in some cases, as the, you know, witness that testified that day said, they're, they're operating on five or seven days per week now. How do you respond to that, that this is something that may not be, you know, something for everyone? 
you don't have to participate if you don't want to, right? This is not an imposition. This is something, if you're thinking about it, if you want some technical assistance from our terrific Department of Labor and our, I have to say, and then our new secretary, very excited about having her on board. I think this is um, a great way to do it. Nobody's forcing anybody to participate in this. But look, I, I just want to share um, an interesting statistic I recently came across. From 1950 to 1970, productivity rose 79%. And wages also rose like close to that, around 76%. But between 1980 and 2019, productivity rose 113% and wages only grew 50%. So there's a mismatch there. As we have ha as we've um, had a techn technology revolution and as we can do more from more places, um, our productivity has, has skyrocketed, but wages haven't. And having a 40-hour work week compressed into 23, I think, is is an appropriate response to kind of the new way we work. It also just has much better balance. Um, and the businesses that have done it have found out how to work smarter and work internally smarter so that it has resulted in an increase in productivity. And I, there's a great study called um, Four Day Week Global did a study last year, in fact. And there were 33 companies around the world, including some in the United States. And as you can imagine, 97% of the employees were happy, but 80% of the companies that tried this are going to stick with it. That says something. We do have a caller online kind of to this point. Greg is calling from Baltimore, um, has business as a 10-hour, four-day week. Greg? Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I run a construction company here in Baltimore. Um, we've only been around for about two, three years. Uh, one of the big decisions we made about a year and a half ago was to go to a four-day work week as opposed to a five. Um, you know, instead of eight-hour days where we're losing time for setup and tear down, you know, four days, ten hours from seven till five. Um, so we're we're saving all that time on our tear up and breakdown. But the guys got a three-day a three-day week uh, weekend every single weekend. Um, it's been. Very crucial. They love it. But one of the biggest things that's helped us out is bringing in some experienced workers um, who've been in the industry for 10, 20 years. They like this because it gives them the flexibility. Now they've got a three-day weekend, and it helps us draw that experience as opposed to them going to a more established company. And, Greg, did you go to this schedule because you were trying to attract workers? What, what caused you to say we're going to do a four-day work week instead of five? Um, one of it was for efficiency. Uh, like I said, you know, we, so we do construction. And so you've got that, you know, that 30 minutes, 45 minutes of tear down at the end of every day. We also do paid lunches. So they're on the clock from seven till five, but they have a half hour lunch break and two 15 hour breaks. Those are paid time. So instead of having that on five days, we have that on four days. So it saves me a little bit of money, you know, so I'm paying, you know, an hour less for, uh, you know, for lunchtime, but, I'm also spending, you know, probably saving an hour a week as well on that setup and that teardown. Plus, it gives me on Fridays, I can do all my administrative work without having to worry about what's happening on the ground. You know, my guys are also, I'm not making calls with them, so I'm able to catch up on the end of my week. It just happens that it really benefited bringing in the experience at the end. Greg, thank you very much for your call. Um, Senator, what's the next step for the bill at this point? It's had one hearing. Where's it headed now? So we had one hearing on the Senate side. Last week, there was a hearing on the House side. 
And now we have to go back and work with committees and see what my colleagues um, and the House colleagues' interests are in tw- in tweaking the bill. And our, as I said already, we've, we're going to be coming in with some amendments to change it. Um, and then we go from there. We the do have a process. We do have a message, and I think this gets to the point about you know kind of public facing services that you know the message is that for offices that serve the public, four days will limit people's ability to get services more than ever. Um, that is a, a consideration with businesses that, again, are public-facing, including government sources, services. Am I correct? Sure. And I just want to make this clear. It doesn't have to be that they're the same four days for everyone, right? So it doesn't have to be that the you know public-facing office is closed on Friday. It could be that some employees are on you know working Tuesday through Friday and have Monday off. So there's flexibility there. Certainly we want to be able to um, serve our customers. Certainly government needs to be able to respond to citizens, absolutely. And I would see that still as you know somebody is covering every day. It just doesn't have to be the same people for the same exact time periods. So we're certainly familiar with that in my uh, you know, former job in television. <laughs> we sure. had shifts that were exactly. all over the place. And in right. fact, I saw a TV station somewhere in the country advertising a producer job with a four-day work week. And I thought, okay. And, and actually, in, in industries like that, that are more kind of 24-7, they could probably fashion you know, shifts, et cetera, that would be just four-day work weeks. Senator Shelley Hedelman from District 11 in Baltimore County, thanks for joining us today, and we'll be keeping track of your bill. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Coming up, Dr. Roger Ward, provost at the University of Maryland at Baltimore, joins me to talk about a future of work pilot. I'm Jane Miller, sitting in for Tom Hall. Please stay with us. This is 88.1 WYPR. Coming up tomorrow, few issues cause as much conversation and sometimes controversy as plans for redevelopment that increase density and transit expansion. We'll discuss plans for a transit-oriented development in the Lutherville-Timonium area. It's drawn a lot of attention. And might the red line be resurrected in Baltimore City? We'll talk about all of that on Midday Tomorrow. I'm Jane Miller today, sitting in for Tom Hall, and I'm joined right now by Dr. Roger Ward, provost at the University of Maryland at Baltimore, to talk about a pilot project underway called The Future of Work. Dr. Ward is also executive vice president and dean of the graduate school. Dr. Ward, thanks for joining Midday. So tell me, what the what's the purpose of the pilot project? Thanks for having me, Jane. The purpose of the project is to assess where we are as an institution and coming out of the pandemic to think strategically about where we need to go relative to how we think about the working environment at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Of course, our sector is higher education. And unlike many other sectors, we have multiple missions. For example, in in corporate America, there's predominantly one mission, a profit motive, again, nothing necessarily wrong with that. Or if you were a nonprofit organization, you might have a specific service mission. Universities have three missions. 
to teach, to do research and scholarship, and to provide service. And in this, in a, on a campus like ours, we have an additional mission, the cl clinical care mission, as we are health and human services campus. And notwithstanding that we're a university, and even though we're a university, we're not insulated from what's happening in the workplace. And so as we're coming out of the pandemic, we too are impacted by the changes in the trajectory of what work look like going forward. You uh, have like a survey going on, am I correct? Across your, you know, different programs in the in the university system? Yeah, well, it's actually more than a survey. We have what I'm calling a strategic institutional study of um, to inform a workforce strategy going forward. So we have put together groups of individual representing faculty and staff at every level of the organizations. We've organized them around three themes, employee value proposition, flexible remote work, and strategic workforce planning. And within each of those, we are doing surveys and mini surveys to get input and feedback from the university community inform our strategies going forward. It's, you know, I, I'm thinking about in large organizations like yours, there may not be a lot known about how people are working, am I correct, in terms of keeping track of it? Well, we know that we know what people are doing at work. And we have, a, I think, at the university, we have a good sense on as to how people are working because we are focused on achieving our strategic priorities. But do we have complete visibility into how people are working? And more importantly, do we have complete visibility and are we synced up with how people would like to work and how people are currently thinking about work, especially across the four generations that are currently in the workforce across the country but and certainly at UMB, you have, of course, your 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 baby bo your baby boomers. Um, you have your Gen Xs. You have your Gen Zs, um, and so these are these generations have unique identities and they value different things. And so we have good visibility into what people are doing. We need to to, to learn more about across these generations, what people's values are as it relates to how they should be working. There's been a lot of resistance, you know, among workers um, to coming back into the office after the pandemic. And they, I think, have gotten kind of the used to the, you know, what they like about not having to be in the office every day. Is this all being taken into account in this, in this you know, study that's going on and in this survey that's going on? Absolutely. And we've heard that loud and clear. You know, before the pandemic, I would argue that we were moving to a digital-first working environment anyway, tied to the various generations that I mentioned and what their preference and values are as it relates to how they work and how much time they're spending on work and even why they work. And given the information and technological revolution, we were moving in that direction. I think the pandemic was a precipitating event that's all like accelerated our time to destination, if you will. And we all got very creative. And we demonstrated that when challenged, we could find ways to continue to work and continue to pursue our mission. And, and our workforce 
had a role in that and they experienced that firsthand. And so any idea and any arguments that were prior to the pandemic advanced that you could only do certain types of work by being on site, I think the pandemic demonstrated, well, well with a little imagination and creativity, um, you can actually do a lot of the work off-site or remotely. And so we heard that loud and clear as well, and it, it does show up in our surveys. So we're not, um, we're, again, we're not insulated from the rest of, of um, the nation as it relates you, to that. You certainly have positions that have to be on site. Am I correct? That is correct. Probably more so than in other industries, I would think. Especially around our clinical mission and our education mission, our students um, across our six professional schools all have to at some point be in-person, in-clinic, um, learning, delivering care. So there are aspects of the educational experience that is best delivered in person and certainly there are certain types of position at the university to, that supports that educational mission that is best and most effectively delivered on site. What we're talking about today is um, a pilot of work, uh, a future of work pilot, that is, um, project that's underway at the University of Maryland at Baltimore. You're listening to Midday on 88.1 WIPR, and I'm Jane Miller sitting in for Tom Hall. And if you want to join us in this conversation about the future of work, uh, phone number is 410-662-8780. You can email us at midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday at Midday WYPR. Um, one of the things that I like to kind of like broaden the discussion here, because when you look at the city of Baltimore, there are key institutional assets. Um, certainly, the University of Maryland's presence in the city of Baltimore is one of them. To the extent, what have what's been your experience over the last couple of years in terms of the pandemic's impact? on the economy of Baltimore and maybe perhaps your surrounding area? I think it has clearly had an impact. We have 7,700 employees, 7,200 students who, again, prior to the pandemic, were essentially on site in on our campus and of course, with that comes their, in, their, their expenditures, their spend. They're consumers. They're consumers, <laughs> right? right? And, right. And, so, and we view ourselves, and we take it very seriously, as one of Baltimore's anchor institutions. And we are very committed to Baltimore City, and particularly where we are located in West Baltimore. So, in fact, when our president talk about the value proposition of having and maintaining some on-site presence in Baltimore. It's not just about having a preference for having people come to work so we could watch them work. It's also about our commitment to Baltimore City and the businesses that surround Baltimore City that depends on our consumers, the consumers that are our students, that are our faculty, that are our staff. And so when they're absent, it impacts our city. And as an anchor institution, we take that very seriously. There's a, a story out of New York, actually, a couple of weeks ago, 
It's estimated that remote work is costing Manhattan $12 billion per year in exactly what you're talking about. I mean, people who come to the office are consumers. They support small business, you know, et cetera, around them. Um, There's a story out of Los Angeles that one of the big corporate, you know, office building owners is defaulting on loans because no one's in the office. And they have a lot of office office vacancies. So this becomes a, a a very large and serious economic issue about the whole issue of where people work. Am I correct about that? It absolutely does. It absolutely does. But one thing we know about the economy is resilient, right? And eventually it will evolve to the new realities of the marketplace. So in the moment, it is causing pressure on those businesses and so on that depend on traffic, foot traffic and people traffic in order to, 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 to survive and thrive. And we, again, in the moment, we have to be attentive to that. And even while we're doing that, we also need to think about ways in which we could also help these businesses evolve. Uh, Because again, as I mentioned before, we are headed to a digital first economy eventually. And that has been accelerated somewhat. So we have to grapple with some of these issues perhaps sooner than we, we would have intended to. So your report that you're doing on the pilot project for Future of Work is coming out soon, am I correct? Well, in on our calendar, hopefully by the end <laughs> of the semester, which for us is um, May, June, and so that leadership could look at it over the summer, spend time with it so that when our faculty, staff, and even our students return to campus, um, we want to be in a position to begin to adopt some of the strategies that would come out of the, that report. All right. I'm going to put, we got a couple of messages here. Um, uh, listener wants to say, ask me, can you ask him more about the four generations? How is the university or how are companies shifting to address all four generations in the workplace? This is a great question, actually, because, you know, I'm kind of old school. <laughs> I mean, the 40-hour work week, which in my industry was always like 60 hours, but mm. whatever. But that five-day, 40-hour work week is like etched in stone. Right. Um, and so how do you address the differences with younger gener- generations versus more experienced generations, et cetera? Well, you know what, Jane, you listen and you respond. And fortunately, we have the benefit of being an, an academic institution. So we have students and they're younger they think more globally, they think more progressively, and so they push us. The first place I heard about the need to think differently across generations, about how we work with students, who in, especially our PhD students, who of course are earning their PhD, but they're also working in our research labs supporting faculty research, and they look at their faculty members who have a previous generation, and they see how they work and they came to us, said, Mr. President, Mr. Provost, I, I admire my faculty mentor, but that's not how I intend to work uh, once I'm, I'm done. And, of course, they were of a different generation. And so as an institution, they pushed us to think about and recognize that we have different generations in our workplace. And we do. We do. And so you have to listen. You have to listen to those generations, and you know I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm a Gen X. 
right? Um, so I think particular way about work. Millennials think differently about, about work, and now Gen Zs that are beginning to show up in a workplace think differently. And the good leader, the responsible institution, has to pay attention to those differences. And you can't learn about them unless you're willing to engage in the conversations. Is flexibility the biggest difference? In other words, people want flexibility in the work schedule, et cetera. And it's flexibility. That is key because they take their, their their caregiving responsibility very seriously. They're also very big on wellness and work-life balance. They're also very big about detaching from the work once they leave the workplace and not having to read emails. And they also are very focused on why they work. And it's not just to earn a paycheck. You know, they want to work with purpose. They have values. And they want to work for organizations that support those values. So it's a myriad of different things. That can really push you, too, as the institution. Am I correct? Yes, it absolutely does. Well, I really appreciate the kind of the conversation about that with, um, you know, when you look at an institution like the University of Maryland at Baltimore, which has, what did you say, it's it's really almost 14,000 people. Yeah, if you count faculty faculty, staff, staff and students. Right. Is your goal to, like, get, you know, all of them back on campus and back in offices at some point or another? In other words, is the hybrid model more, you know, perhaps something you're looking at more than just a completely remote model? I think it would be unreasonable to expect them to all come back across all the different missions that we serve. And so the missions, we have to keep the missions in mind. We, we serve different missions as an academic as an academic institution. And so I think we're talking about a hybrid model. And across some of the different jobs that exist and positions that exist on campus, there are people who will work completely remotely. And there are others who will need to be on site five days a week. That's just we along the spectrum. We have all those positions and it's trying to find the appropriate balance. No one size is going to fit all, and, and we have to recognize that, and hopefully our workers do as well. I want to ask you, that before you go, uh, um, we just had a conversation before you came on about the bill in Annapolis to create a pilot project for a four-day work week. Is a four-day work week something that's part of what you're looking at, too, in terms of the future work pilot that you're looking at at your institution? Everything is on the table. <laughs> and I, don't, I don't mind telling you that after commencement in May, I go to a four-day work week personally. Um, just to manage my time over the summer before I return for the fall semester. And so everything for us is on the table. And this is an earnest examination about what the future of work should look like. So everything is on the table. Well, we look forward to the report that's going to be published at some point. And what will happen to it? You'll publish it, it'll become public, and then what happens? Well, we tend not to produce documents and just let them sit. And so it's one thing to publish. The other thing is we're going to act on it. So beyond the publishing and and sharing broadly across the university and with other interested stakeholders, we're going to act on it. All right. Dr. Roger Ward is provost, executive vice president and dean of the graduate school at the University of Maryland at Baltimore. Dr. Ward, thanks for joining us on this holiday. Thanks for having me. Coming up, Governor Wes Moore often speaks of the large number of vacancies in public sector jobs. But what can be done to attract more applicants and fill these openings? I'll be joined by Patrick Moran, president of AFSME Council 3 to talk about that issue. That's next on Midday. I'm Jane Miller in for Tom Hall. Please stay with us.
This is your public radio, 88.1 WYPR. Welcome back to Midday. I'm Jane Miller filling in for Tom Hall. If you're just joining us, we've been spending this holiday talking about work, how to accommodate a better balance between work and life, and new types of workplaces. My guest now is Patrick Moran, president of AFSCME Council 3, the largest public servers workers union in Maryland. This union also represents employees at the state's public universities across the state. Patrick, thank you, and it's good to see you. I mean, I've covered you, like, for a whole bunch of times, so it's really good to see you. Good to see you, Jane. Well, let's start with the topic of um, vacancies Mm -hmm. in state service Mm -hmm. and in public service, because this has been a really big issue. I know when I was still working in television news, I did story many stories about really vacancies across the board mm-hmm. um, and really serious issues that result from that. I mean, the backup of autopsies, for example, in the office of the chief medical examiner was just a really serious public health issue and serious issue. Um, many other, you know, agencies that have been short-staffed the governor, I think he put the number at 10,000 vacancies. Mm-hmm. Is that about right? It's, from where you yeah, sit? It's, it's slightly more than that, but it's. I have to give them a lot of credit for, you know, they initially came out and said, oh, we think it's about 6,000. And we sat down with them and we showed them how it was, it's definitely over 10,000 and they corrected themselves. Um, so I give them credit for uh, looking into it and being honest um, in comparison to the last eight years that we saw under the Hogan administration, which was deny, 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 block, deny, deny, and um, that there was any problem at all. But uh, it took just one you know, uh, look under the rock and you saw the, the huge problem that the state faces now. Um, and we see it not only in just the overtime bills uh, for individual agencies, we see it in the services. I mean, they've had to every single day, there is a helicopter operation in this state that has to shut down completely. So that adds extra time to their responses. If there's an accident where someone has to be medevaced from a site, it's going to take on average seven to eight minutes more for them to get there because these things are closed down. And then <clears throat> that means probably an extra seven or eight minutes to get to the hospital they're going to, uh, et cetera. So that's putting people's lives at risk and the public's lives at risk who are paying for these services. And the previous administration just didn't care. They have a 30% vacancy rate uh, amongst um, those some job classifications, um, you know, and more. Uh, you know, I, I could go on for an hour, Jane, Patrick, about where this. Did, where, <clears throat> where are these folks? Where did they go? I mean, what, you know, and not that this state was ever 100% fully staffed, right, but obviously right, has been right, really, right. you know, had staffing issues for the last mm-hmm. few years. Where do these folks go? I think a lot of people um, are finding things that, you know, to your previous, um, you know, uh, guests' point, that they're finding things where they can work from home. Uh, they're finding, uh, because look, all sorts of things have, have closed down. Childcare, there's a huge drought in childcare providers. And so then what do people do? They're, they're left with no options. They're doing with less. So people are just cutting down uh, on things so they can stay home with their children if they need be, if, if need to, and relying on their spouse to, to um, you know, provide income. 
um, you know, because childcare is a huge expense. Um, and, you know, the only way I think you're going to fill the vacancies in the state of Maryland is you're going to have to readjust the pay scale. I mean, that's painfully obvious. Our members' wages have not kept up with the rate of inflation. Um, you know, most uh, state employees have not kept up with the rate of inflation unless you're e- either a trooper or a firefighter. Um, they've gotten really significant increases. Our members have not. Um, the uh, You're going to have to make adjustments on, on things, you know, to, to the earlier guest, um, Senator Hedelman, she's looking for ideas outside the box. And I really do think this current administration is willing to look outside the box, is willing to be collaborative. Um, I, I spent, um, amazingly, I spent a whole day uh, with a member of the governor's staff going um, to work sites throughout uh, Maryland on Friday, talking to our members about what's going on and, and looking at what is causing these vacancies. And time and time again, um, it's just uh, the lack of pay and um, poor management. Uh, that's, that's, that's one of the huge things is, is poor management. But again, people can't eat a great environment, right? They need, to, they need wages in order to, to eat. You're listening to Midday on 88.1 WIPR. I'm Jane Miller sitting in for Tom Hall. Uh, Patrick Miranda is my guest at the moment, uh, president of AFSCME Council 3. You know, Patrick, you you heard, you know, Senator Hedelman. What do you think of the four-day work week idea? I think it's an interesting idea. Um, there's a lot of questions that we have around it. Um, you know, we would, uh, we'd love to sit down and sort of look through those and look at the different paths and ideas. Uh, but it brings, you know, it brings forward, um, a number of different opportunities, but again, a lot of questions that we need to, uh, uh ask about it. Well, so, cause one of the issues also is the attractiveness of the workplace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't mean that. Well, I do mean that in some right. ways physically. Right, right. I mean, people want different kinds of office spaces, mm-hmm, et cetera. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. You know, that the, you look at newer construction and the office is laid out entirely differently than it was before the pandemic. Right. But that is clearly something that if it's a three-day off instead of two, is that makes a, a, a job perhaps more attractive. Am I correct? Oh, I, I think to a lot of people. I mean, we've, we've heard, as you know, over time, Jane, like, oh, you know, technology is going to bring all this change and more leisure time, but more leisure time for the leisure class and, and, and the elites It did not bring more leisure time for working people. It brought greater productivity and greater hours for working people. It did not bring more leisure. I mean, that's an absolute and complete falsehood. I mean, ask any working person, um, look at you and the job you used to do that did not you know all the great technology did not did not bring more time for you to relax and rest no uh, and in uh, some ways rest. it adds work yeah it did <laughs> right right all the different formats because you could do and, more yes right exactly technology so, allows you to do right, more right. correct so i mean if that's going to bring more leisure time to people to enjoy family and community time that's great the thing is is we you still need to have you know wages that are going to allow you to enjoy that and contribute to the community i think what you're saying is okay well, we can go maybe to a four-day work week, but that doesn't mean you get paid less. Right. Exactly. Okay. No, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's what they've done in some places. I mean, you have to remember in the state of Maryland, there was a 35-hour week, work week, you know, a few decades ago. And then Governor, um, uh, I, I can't recall his name, but uh, governor, the governor at the time increased the work week to 40 hours without any change in pay. So uh, people were still working more. Uh, we're working more with for less pay. So, yeah. If, in terms of the idea of hybrid versus in-person work, can yep. 
you know, a lot of state agencies are public facing. They provide services. They provide in-person services. Can that model work? You hear a lot of complaints. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. nobody will answer the phone. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't get anybody to pick up the phone, et cetera. Um, can that model work in terms of providing service? I think in some instances it can. It can a, a hybrid model uh, will work. I mean, there are some instances where you just need to have a person in person. Um, but then some instances it can work. And and we've you know been working uh, to um, you know move some of that forward in some of the agencies to do a hybrid model. Um, you know, there's some resistance within the agencies. You think they would want to do whatever they could in order to to bring more people in or retain people. They're having a huge problem retaining people, not just uh, bringing new people in. Um, it's a massive problem with the wage compression and and the stagnant wages over the years. People are hitting that certain point where they know they're going to retire it, and they're out. Um, so they need to look at anything they can and work with uh, our members on that. Do you see anywhere around the country that where there's a you know model that's working in terms of attracting and retaining employees better than, you know? You know, I I mean, there's hits and misses all over the country, and it all depends on the job itself. Uh, We're seeing some places like, oh, they've, you know, I'm I'm thinking about Minnesota recently, and they did a huge bonus and, and, um, you know, to, to attract new people. Um, and they did a pay raise for everyone on one job, you know, classification. But then in other others, they're failing. Um, it, it, it again, it all depends on the needs of the state and where it's most, um, um, va- where the vacancies lie the most. So, you know, it's it's all over the map. But I, I think in Maryland, more than anything, they need to look at the entire wage scale. Is what they need to look at. So, again, if you want to call us on this topic, uh, 410-662-8780, and you can email us at midday at wypr.org. Patrick, you know, the the um, governor really spoke extensively in his State of the State mm-hmm. address about public service, um, which does seem to have lost its luster. Is there another way to put that? <laughs> I mean, the city's got, you know, I don't know what it is now, but it was a huge vacancy rate. Plus, you had all these people, you know, eligible to retire. There's a lot of conversation. In fact, the city's involved in a future of work pilot project, too, or some kind of survey that, you know, hasn't been completed yet. Um, How do you how do you how do you put the luster back on? Public service jobs. I, I think there's a couple of things. One is you have to be competitive. Right. I, I mean, that's just the, the nature of the game in this day and age. That's one. Two is um, because you're seeing, you know, companies as a result of legislation and employers have had to offer health care, comprehensive health care. You know, that, that's a result of uh, Obamacare. Right. And um, so that's no longer a thing that attracts people as vehemently as the great health care that was offered to most public employees. Right. It it was always always the old adage of like, you're not going to make a lot of money in public service, but you'll have stable and quality benefits. Pensions. Pensions. Right. Yeah, exactly. And as the private sector has had to adjust to some of those things um, to be more like the rest of the industrialized world, um, then, you know, that luster has sort of lost itself. So people are running for the money and, and you're going to have to be competitive on that. I think we have a phone call. I've lost my screen in here, so I can't see. Uh, Steve, let's, let's hear from Steve. Thanks, Steve. How are you? Um, 
I'm wondering if the state has looked at scenarios where certain jobs can have uh, pension benefits that vest more quickly than others, and using that as a tool for maybe attracting much more qualified or more experienced workers, maybe even people later in their career who could afford a slight pay cut in return for that quickly vesting pension benefit. Patrick? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve, and one that we have fought for years because we used to have a five-year vesting, and then they changed to 10 years you know, during the O'Malley administration. And um, we thought that was a bad idea then, and we still think it's a bad idea, and it's one that our members talk about all the time um, because that does attract uh, people. And, and to Steve's point, it can attract people that um, are sort of towards the end of their career but maybe want to go someplace else and try something new. Um, because, you know, to most younger folks coming in, they look at that and they, eh, you know, and about five six, seven, eight years into the job, they're like, oh yeah, I have this and I'm going to have this. And whereas, you know, a lot of people, the big question is why do only public employees have it? No. Why doesn't everyone have you know, a pension? I've got to tell you that I've had this conversation with yep. private sector folks, you yep. know, you want to retain your employees, bring back a pension. Right. Absolutely. No. You know, do we have another caller? Okay. Um, well, we're just about at the close of this session. You know, we, when you talk about the benefit issue and- I think that it, it it it's a problem that people don't understand. I mean, it, especially when you're first on the job, of what <laughs> does lie down the road depending right. on the job you have. Right. So, what's what's on your plate in terms of this and in, in you know trying to make the job more attractive? You know, we're, when I, you're in contract negotiations, yeah, yeah, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, big thing is wage compression. You know, you're bringing in a lot of new people, and it was my point earlier. It's keeping on. You know, keeping the people that have been on the job around. Uh, The previous administration, the Hogan administration, didn't care about it. Quite frankly, in my opinion, they didn't care about governing at all. Uh, It was all by press release. And, you know, the results of that are are blatantly obvious. Uh, The the fact that people that have been on the job for 10, 15 years um, are making almost just a little bit more than people are coming on the job now because they have had to to attract new people, and they just didn't care about retaining people. Um, That's been a huge problem. You're going to have to address that. If you want to keep the more experienced people to train those new people and also fill those jobs, you know, go in the outer years, you're going to have to bring those um, wages and and make a change in benefits. Those are the big uh, picture items. Where do you think the most um, critical vacancies are? I think the most, most critical level of the Yeah, yeah most critical level in, in, in are in uh, health services in the state, um, um, uh, public safety, and, um, and probably, you know, human services like foster care and things like that. I mean, the foster care system in the state has been annihilated. They put no money into it, uh, the previous administration. And um, it, it's really sad because it's harming youth. Juvenile services, again, um, people are working 18-hour days, and you cannot provide great services for kids in need if you are worn out yourself, if you are going in three to four, five days a week working 16 to 18 hours a day. That's a disservice to you, but most importantly, it's a disservice to the people that you are trying to help. All right. Well, my guest today has been Patrick Moran. president of AFSCME Council 3, which represents state and higher education employees. Sounds like you're going to have something to talk about with uh, your visit with the governor on, where you say, the Eastern Shore, right? Uh, well, we were, we were, yeah, we were just uh, we were just all throughout uh, the 95 corridor recently, yeah. okay. but we're going to be making more visits as well. Gotcha. Yep. All right. 
Well, Patrick, thank you for being thank here you, today. We appreciate That's you. That's it for midday. Coming up tomorrow, redevelopment, transit expansion. And remember the red line? Well, it might get revived. We're going to talk about that as well. I'm Jane Miller in for Tom Hall. Thanks for joining us and have a good day. This is 88.1 WIPR.